0: Or good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of the Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, as you know, f- for many many years I've been saying that anything can happen. But of course, that's going on now twenty four seven, and in part, that's kind of kind of the the back theme of tonight's program because we're going to be looking at the last uh, 20 years and maybe 50 years. We'll, we'll get into that as we get into the morning. As you know, if you pay any attention to the news these days, there's uh, all kinds of strange things that are happening. A lot of it, unfortunately, rather negative. So I thought we'd lead tonight with two related stories that are extraordinarily positive. I don't know whether you've all been paying attention, but on Wednesday of last week, uh, SpaceX launched four uh, civilians, four amateurs, as the mainstream media has called them, four not quite so ordinary people. In other words, four people who were not astronauts for the first time in a combined mission where there were no Air Force officers, there were no pilots of, of spacecraft, there were no uh, special NASA uh, gung-ho, you know, astronauts on board, four civilians, uh, a billionaire, and three people that he paid for uh, with his uh, funding to SpaceX to basically um, rent a rocket and a spacecraft, which they call Reliant, uh, or no, I'm sorry, Resilience, I'm thinking of another ship. And they spent three days in Earth orbit uh, up to about 360 miles, which is about 100 miles higher than the International Space Station. And they had 15 sunrises and sunsets per per day, and they spent three days in orbit conducting all kinds of medical tests. The, the other uh, crew members, in addition to um, uh, Jerry Isaacman, who was the billionaire, who uh, funded the mission there was a, a young lady 29 years old from uh, st june's hospital she's a physician's assistant she was the civilian medical uh, officer of the of the flight of the expedition and then there was um a scion um provost who was the um she had tried out to be a nasa astronaut and uh, is a geo specialist in in space science and planetary science uh, she's on board as the kind of uh, science officer and then there was a gentleman um, from uh, Lockheed Martin who won a contest and he'd applied to to uh, be part of the uh, mission and lo and behold Musk called him up and said you're it, I, I, I don't think it was Musk I think it was uh, uh, Isaacman anyway, these four civilians spent three days in an amazing experience, and, and we're going to talk much more about it in detail next week when we do another space update on things that are occurring both in Earth orbit with Musk and with Mars. There has been some new developments vis-a-vis the unmanned Perseverance mission to the surface of Mars. We have found more things, including a collection of objects which I'm very tempted to call Ron's Ruins after Ron Gerbrun, who's one of our imaging team members. He first spotted them. He's now got many overlapping images of the same set of stuff. And so we're going to kind of regale you with some amazing new images from Mars, uh, which are getting better. They're getting better at the cal- calibrations. They're getting better with focus. They're. It's only taken them, what, eight months, something like that? Anyway, um, that's item number one in Radio with Pictures. And for those of you who are new to the show... Uh, as an adjunct to radio, we have an image set of files where you can actually go on the web and look at imaging and stories and videos and uh, other links that we provide, our guests provide, during the program. So if you're on a smartphone, it's really simple to uh, simulcast both uh, the audio from the show as well as the imaging. And the way you go to there, where you find it, is you go to the other side of com. that's our URL, and you click on the banner, which for tonight says, rather dramatically, 9 11 20 years after, what have we learned part two. You click on that, that will take you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, you see fast links to items. Uh, click on my items, Richard, that will take you to my stories, my imaging, my connections that I think are relevant to the conversation of the evening and right there you'll see number one is the uh, uh, SpaceX all-civilian space flight of course this is a story updated for after they landed which was m- mountain time yesterday evening about five o'clock my time they splashed down just off Cape Canaveral in the Atlantic Ocean because there was a storm in the Gulf of Mexico which is their normal reentry point, and they uh, were recovered within about 40 minutes and then helicoptered from uh, the recovery ship to Cape Canaveral uh, the Kennedy Space Center proper, and uh, I believe now they've all gone back to their you know various homes and are are spending a an absolutely amazing post mission time re- re- you know regaling their families and friends and neighbors and whoever will listen what their amazing three days in space was like. And I'm going to talk about this in great more detail next weekend. But just to give you a heads up, we have now entered, in terms of Earth orbit, the second age of space, which was kicked off uh, a couple, three months ago by uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and uh, his famous British counterpart, who's the owner of uh, Virgin Air, Air Airlines, and um, is is trying with unmanned orbital flights. To give people like four minutes of weightlessness? Well, when you go into orbit, you are weightless from the time that you are accelerated enough and the engines cut off to remain in free fall around the Earth and around and around and around. So these guys who just came back had four, I'm sorry, three days of zero gravity and one of the really cool things and if you look at the uh, photo which is the link to the actual story in item number one in my section you notice that because they were not docking with the International Space Station they had that front hatch where they go through a tunnel and they can go into the space station when they're docked well given that they were not docking what they decided to do was something really brilliant they put a hemispherical dome over the end of the tunnel which is exposed to space when that door that hatch is swung open to the side and remains open during the mission and uh, that that gave them extraordinary views 180 degree views in low earth orbit it must have been quite an incredible experience so the only reason we haven't heard more of what they're doing and what they were doing Is because instead of uh, choosing to um, relay the sights and sound of the three-day extraordinarily important historic mission uh, live to the ground like a NASA mission does um, they've stuck it behind a paywall over on Netflix and the Netflix channel when you go there says that their next update on the mission will be September 30th which looking at my calendar is uh, many, many days away. So uh, we're going to talk next week about putting these experiences behind paywalls, which is absolutely counterindicated in terms of our NASA experience over the last several decades. But is that part of the price that comes from having private enterprise in orbit and to pay for the missions to have at some level to, quote, make money? Now, in this case, The mission was not making money to make money it was making money to donate to saint june's hospital and in fact as of last night i haven't checked the numbers today uh, but as of last night the mission had apparently raised almost 160 million dollars in donations and contributions and pledges uh, from the audience paying attention to the first all-civilian mission into Earth orbit to safely return. That's not bad. I mean, I remember the old days of the Jerry Lewis telethon, and if I had been, you know, advising either Musk or Mr. Isaacman, I would have said, no, your business model is wrong. You should do a telethon like Jerry did from orbit, from that cupola with the Earth in the background and live actualities like the conversations they had with some of the patients at St. Jude's. But, you know, who am I? So, I don't have a billion dollars or two, so we will discuss this in more detail next week. But I think that this this is not the way to run a railroad. This is not the way to introduce most of humanity to civilians becoming the predominant occupiers of space, and I'm sure we will have a spirited discussion uh, with some of my friends more on, we should say, the right-hand side of the political spectrum. Be that as it may, item number two is kind of a segue to item number one because a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, um, down in Florida at Boca Chico, uh, SpaceX lifted the Starship. Remember, that's the upper part of the spacecraft that Musk is building that's not only going to go into Earth orbit with lots of passengers, you know, civilians, but also in the next couple, three years, maybe three years, is destined to take the first civilian flight around the moon and return safely to the Earth. And so to do that, they need a very, very, very large rocket Called the Super Heavy Booster, and that Super Heavy Booster was lifted onto its launch stand, complete with the Starship um, upper stage on top. And if you click on that article, the most interesting thing is the close ups of the engines, because what Musk has done to create this Super Heavy Booster is he has clustered his rocket engines. Like the Russians, like the Soviets did um, 30, 40 years ago, and theirs blew up repeatedly, the N1. They never made it safely off the launch pad uh, because of the problems in that day and age of synchronizing the exhaust and the resonance and the shock waves from all those multiple engines firing simultaneously. They were never able to successfully accomplish that mission, and so the Soviets had to cancel trips to the moon because their super-heavy booster, even more, uh, shall we say, prodigious than the Saturn V. Well, they could never get it to work because of the interactions between the various engines and the fact that they could not be synchronized. Well, now, in an area of electronics, of AI, of computer control... Of much better engineering Uh, as we know from his launch of the heavy booster a couple three years ago with the uh, red uh, Tesla Roadster uh, Musk and his engineering team have been able to solve the synchronization problem so when the Starship comes up for its first orbital flight which is going to be sometime in the next few months Um, we can imagine that all those engines firing simultaneously will pave the way for another group of civilians to someday get on the starship leave from boca chico or maybe the cape we're not sure which yet and literally travel around the moon before returning to the earth that's where we're headed and as this audience knows There are surprises, astonishing surprises to be discovered by civilians, not military astronauts, but by civilians waiting on the moon for those close-up images and live chats through social media, etc., etc., etc. That's what Wednesday triggered. That's what it kicked off. The first civilian crews to look at what's out there particularly on the moon and to be able, uncensored, to report on what they see. Moving on, as you know, we're having major problems with climate and weather and global warming. And one of the sad indicators is item number three, the world's largest tree, a sequoia in upper Northern California called General Sherman, is in the path of another of California's raging forest fires. There's the, I've lost count, there's too many, there's tens of millions of acres tonight burning out of control because of a combination of factors that we've covered on this show many, many times. I just thought it was kind of a harbinger of things to come unless we change paths um, that they're trying by wrapping the base of the most amazing tree in the world, the largest, uh, which, by the way, at the base is broader than the Saturn V or uh, Musk's super heavy booster, I think it's 38 feet in diameter. They're wrapping the base of it with an aluminized foil, which reflects the intense heat of... Uh, Uh, you know, the forest fire, and uh, most vitally protects the base of the tree where the roots enter the soil. Um, Sequoias are known to be fire resistant. In fact, fire is one of the parts of the ecosystem that allows sequoias and redwoods to spread their seeds because like little miniature mortars or grenades, the heat pops the seeds and the trajectories take the Take the seed pods far away from the tree, where they are buried by rainstorms and you know little animals and whatever, and they sprout into new redwoods or new sequoias. Well, the fires have changed because of the environmental conditions, particularly um, something called chemtrails, which has produced an overwhelming residue of aluminum oxide. In the soil. So these forest fires are burning so much hotter with measurably much longer flame lengths, which you can see if you click on some of the links in that story. And so the Forest Service is trying to take kind of minimal precautions to see if it can help this sequoia survive. And as I said, as of a couple of days ago, it was in the path of one of these large raging forest fires. And as of tonight, uh, I do not know whether General Sherman has survived. With Google, you can find out. Item number four. Remember, I said that we tried to start out with some upbeat stuff. Item number four and five go together. Remember, I've been saying from the get-go that if COVID-19 is not the natural evolution from bat viruses to something could infect humans but in fact was a designed uh, virus, a a virus, let's say for argument's sake, that escaped from the lab. And we now have a lot of documentation that the US government did fund, uh, what do they call that? Gain of function research out of the Wuhan lab for these families of coronaviruses. Uh, There's new paperwork, new leaked documents, which reveals that. Well, if someone on earth Or, in my model, someone off Earth decided to weaponize COVID-19. The question then arises, why? Uh, There are several possible answers, some of which we may get to tonight, because they're all extraordinarily controversial. But I want to kind of put it on the record that what I've been saying all along is, you know, our focus on the eventualities of a pandemic like the need for masks, the need to ultimately find a vaccine which works and which is safe, pale by consideration to what the virus unchecked is doing all by itself. Now, everybody focuses, as they rightly should, on the percentage of people who contract this disease, this virus, and die. And obviously, you want that number as low as possible. I've been saying from the beginning um, I'm equally concerned with those who contract this this pandemic, contract this virus, COVID-19, and don't die, because the numbers are now telling us that something upwards of 30% of people who contract COVID-19 come down with what they've termed euphemistically long COVID, symptoms that last for weeks and months And sometimes, you know, we've now got, what, 18 months of data? There are people still suffering from the effects of COVID-19 who picked it up over a year ago. My question has been, what happens to those people, the long COVID people, and is, in fact, this the kind of ulterior reason for creating this virus in the first place, again, in the model that it was Created And I think the evidence is accumulating, and even mainstream observers are now coming to the conclusion that this was something that if it was not designed as a bioweapon, it was the next best thing, because when it escaped, it has acted like a bioweapon. So, if it was designed to do something besides kill people, and its efficiency at killing people is far below, you know, things like Ebola, etc., if it was designed to infect a large number of people, what would have been the reason? Well, that's where story four and five come in. Because separate studies conducted on opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean are indicating the same thing, that there have been something like um, t- 13,000 people out of a field of 80,000 that were measured who've had substantial decreases in their intelligence as gauged by standard IQ tests that these patients were given. Now again, as with anything in science these days, for every study, there's a counterfactual study, or at least there are people who claim there's something else going on. So without kind of polluting the conversation, all I'll tell you is read those two items, read the source links, and then begin to do your own research. Because my approach to this has been getting this, even if you survive, is not something you want to do. You want to avoid getting COVID-19 in every way possible. And if you get it, the application, as soon as you know, of monoclonal antibodies seems to do the trick and prevent you from dying. Does it prevent you from having long COVID? That's something... We don't know. Nobody knows, because this is so new. And our whole medical regime seems to be predicated on months and years of study, where now we've only had a few months of exposure to a novel virus, which has all kinds of novel symptoms, up to and including, if you look at these studies, a substantial impact on cognitive function and the brain. And again... There are people who say there are other possible explanations for this. Um, You've got to do your homework. And when I say do your homework, don't just stick with social media. Go to original sources. Try to find papers, studies. Try to find peer-reviewed papers or studies. This is the no single point failure model. That's what science is built on. It isn't one person's results. It's one person's results that then can be corroborated again and again and again by independent people, independent researchers, independent doctors, and independent teams that come up with the same answer. That's how we know what we know, at least in terms of the Western scientific modality. Is there any other way to fly? I don't think so. Moving on. If it weren't surrounded by the pandemic, we're surrounded by global warming, we're surrounded by, you know, political uh, extremism of all kinds of inconceivable positions just a few years ago that are now being normalized, like celebrating a bunch of insurrectionists on the Capitol grounds yesterday, we have something else to worry about. A major volcano has erupted on La Palma, which is part of the uh, islands just off the uh, coast of, of uh, Africa and uh, Spain, and there had been major, major questions about this particular set of islands for many, many years because one of them has a very large overburden that experts have been, you know, uh, concerned a major earthquake, and of course volcano eruptions are preceded and carried out during earthquakes, could cause this huge mass of of rock and earth to slide into the Atlantic Ocean, creating an enormous tsunami, which would then race unchecked 600 miles an hour uh, to the west and impinge all up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States to say nothing of Islands in the Caribbean, Cuba, um, haiti, Puerto Rico, St. Thomas, you name it, as well as some of the northern you know countries in uh, South America, that huge tsunami could cause such devastation, and literally millions of people could perish in the space of a few hours again, as if we didn't have enough to worry about so if you want to click on that link, number six, you can see some live video. And I think there's a webcam in that story, which will give you, you know, live information right now. Um, as you know, some of our people are on the West Coast and some are on the East Coast. It's the ones on the East Coast that are paying very careful attention to this story tonight because it's like, what else can happen? Uh, it's not a high probability. It's a low probability, but it's not zero. And we're living in a world where the margins are becoming very important. Tonight, we're going to be talking about 9-11 and the changes on the planet that have occurred in the last 20 years. And these changes, in part, have occurred because, I believe, of the inevitable after effects of this major geopolitical tragedy, and some of them may have occurred because of design. In other words, they were built into the fabric of whatever conspiracy created 9-11 and then has spent 20 years lying about what really occurred. Last night, you heard from uh, uh, one of our guests who has done a really good book on the uh, stories of the families, many of the families who have been searching for answers to 9-11 for 20 years. Tonight, I want to widen our focus. I want to, you know, kind of zoom back, you know, zoom out, and look at the big, big picture. If, in fact, this was not a, you know, small group of terrorists who decided on a... uh, uh you know bright sunny afternoon in the fall of of uh 2001 to pull off the most amazing terrorist uh event of of uh, you know history recent history certainly if it was part of a larger plan how is that plan going where are we on that plan what are the indicators we should look for have there been any contravening activities which are at this late stage contravening that plan and if things go on the way they in one model were designed to go on how do we get off the train how do we change the conversation how do we um well how do we interrupt history a history that we do not see being made and have it take a different course So this evening we're going to talk about, 20 years later, the geopolitical effects of 9-11 and where are we going.
1: As you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities. And your other higher senses and gifts come online. And then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important, because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, Renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemisphere and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed, into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that, despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed? Or if you ignore it, right, then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us. Accept our mess and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the news And I really enjoy my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and and what we're heading toward. I really recommend listening in and and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important, and these are the times to do it. And we're being asked, to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, think beyond beyond the box.
0: back, everyone, on this Sunday night, September 19th, 2021. We're considering tonight, and we've got a really good cast to consider this with, the impact of 9-11 20 years after, two decades of what was called, up until a few days ago, the forever war. And then, against the backdrop of a great deal of howling and squealing and You know, folks like Stuck Pig saying, Oh, no, you can't end it. Oh, oh. The current president of the United States officially called an end to the 20-year-long Afghanistan war, the beginning of the war on terror with this incredibly strange side, you know, journey into Iraq. And so the forever war came to an end a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. Not quietly, as wars never end quietly, um, but it has ended. Now, there are a whole bunch of other wars going on around the the world tonight that we're not privy to. Fortunately, we do not seem to be part of them, although one could argue that, that there are secret wars that we're involved in, which uh, we're we're, we're not kind of aware of. And that, of course, is the responsibility of a free press, the media which of course has all also changed dramatically in the last 20 years. So without further ado, uh, let me uh, introduce our players tonight. Our faculty, our guests, uh, we of course have uh, uh, Barbara Honiger with us. Barbara was a former member, very interesting historical perspective. She was the <clears throat> only woman in, involved in the Reagan administration at a senior policy level. And so she has uh, been on this show many different times, has talked about her experiences, has talked about her her being one of the boys. <clears throat> and uh, she's now been playing a pivotal role in the search for the truth about 9-11, uh, whose 20th anniversary, I hate that word, because... You know, anniversaries should be joyful commemorations. This obviously was not. So she has been part of the uh, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Truth, and she has uh, uh, been heavily involved in trying to get at the uh, truth about what happened 20 years ago for, well, the last two decades. Our other participant this evening is, uh, is Dr. Richard Spence, who's a professor of history at Uh, University of Idaho he says he's now retired but it's one of those things where are you ever really retired his interests include Russian and military history including uh, espionage, occultism and anti-semitism and you can go to the other side of midnight and click on both their bios and read a lot more, I don't want to take up any more time so Barbara and Rick, welcome back to the other side of midnight
1: well thank you, Richard, and welcome back to the other side of midnight yourself <laughs>
0: <laughs> We have had some infrastructure problems here in New Mexico, which <laughs> I believe are now going to be solved. There have been some important new developments, and I may have more to report to our audience uh, next week on that front. Um, Rick, I want to start with you because as as an, as an historian and I'm having electronic problems here sorry um, as an historian uh We're looking now at an aftermath in a limited sense of a 20-year war, which literally ended a few days ago. Has there been any other comparable period in American history, and maybe in a broader context, where a population has been involved in such a lengthy endeavor? And if so, what were the effects on that culture as compared to the obvious changes and our own culture.
2: Well, you mean if war's gone on for more than 20 years?
0: Yes.
2: Yes, yes. That's not uncommon at all. If you go back far enough, not even that far, there was the Hundred Years' War, which actually was longer than 100 years and was on and off. That might be a good but You wouldn't think there would be connections. So what was the Hundred Years' War? The Hundred Years' War um, began in the 14th century and it ended in the 15th century. And basically from the 1340s up to about the uh, 1480s, and it essentially involved what we would now call England and France. And it went through a variety of phases, but one of the things it was essentially, what the war was about in the beginning was an effort by the English monarchs to make themselves the kings of France. That had to do because history, most almost all of their ancestors were from France, and they had countries where uh, you didn't really have countries, let's say, in the in, in the 14th century as you think of the day. You had domains under the control of particular families and warrior aristocracies. So the English domains were anything that the English king was, was lord over, that the nobility under him, paid taxes and gave obedience and there were large parts of what today we would think of as france that were under english political and you know, economic control and um, the other part of that was that the english kings were otherwise confined to a rather foggy unprofitable island um and france was was a much bigger prize i mean they had wine there's the difference okay someone actually proposed that this war was fought over access to wine Wine grapes didn't grow in England. Oh. They grew in France. Now, it's, it's not as simple as that, but it, but it gives you an idea as to why they would be so eager to well, control Well, wait, wait,
0: wait. wait. There's an interesting comparison yeah. then because part of the forever war, which included Iraq, it was said, in fact, by U.S. government officials high up. I think Rumsfeld himself made a statement that the Iraq war, which is part of the Afghanistan war, the forever war, was in part to safeguard another economic mainstay of our economy, oil. So, if well, England was conducting a hundred years' war against France for an economic benefit, i.e., the wine, there's an interesting parallel.
2: Well, again, that's it wasn't just the wine. It was essentially vanity. It was the let's say the the oh well, ego, amb- ego. Yeah, ego. It was the corporate ambitions of the of the Plantagenets and another guy who really simply wanted to lord over a bigger country. And so this war went on and off, and the English, uh, even though a much smaller country with a smaller population and a much smaller economy, now here again is one of those things where you would assume that the rule is always that the country that has more people and has the bigger economy will militarily prevail. No, that is not a rule, and the Hundred Years' War is an example of that. The English pretty much beat up on the French continuously. For much of that time... um, The anybody who's familiar with Shakespeare and the play Henry V, you know, Kenneth Branagh, other actors have played him, Laurence Olivier, but Henry V is this English, it's one of Shakespeare's historical plays, and that's really the kind of peak of British success. This was in 1415, and Henry led a small English army in, which defeated a much larger French one, and and really, he, he... he almost succeeded in establishing the British monarchs as the overlords of France. He was going to he was going to put together a dynastic marriage that was going to join the two countries together. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, the French eventually recovered their moxie, and thanks to I don't know people like Joan of Arc, she shows that she's part of this as well. <laughs> oh God. Um, The war changes, and the British, within uh, another 40 years, are are defeated and eventually driven out of France completely and forced to become nothing more than the lords of their foggy, grapless little island. But then, of course, they went on to become the British Empire. So the war started as a dynastic struggle. It basically started as the struggle between rich families, who were basically all cousins of each other in one form, fighting as to who was going to be top dog. And the peoples they led when the war started back in the 1300s weren't specifically, you know, you couldn't even go around at that time and find somebody who was distinctly English or French in the way that we think of them today. Because people didn't tend to think of themselves as belonging. Nations didn't really exist. You, you know, you were a... Now, if you lived in Western Europe in this in this period, what you were basically, the way that people would generally identify them if you asked someone what they were, is they go, well, I'm a Christian. right that's 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 one thing that pretty much everybody in England, and France, Scotland, those areas were. remember, this this is also pre-reformation, so they're all pretty much Catholics. <laughs> but that's the way that they would identify themselves by their religious affiliation. and then, well, I live in such and such a village in such and such a, a province, I'm from Normandy or from Brittany or I'm from Shropshire or I'm from some other area. But the sense of being part of some sort of larger abstract nation basically didn't exist. And there, there were no formalized languages. I mean, there was, there was nothing in the sense of what we would tend to think of today as standard English or standard French. There were just a lot of basically illiterate local dialects that were vaguely familiar to each other. But then one of the things that the war did, one of the reasons why this Hundred Years' War is an interesting reference point, beyond the obvious fact that the only name you could eventually come up with it for it was the Hundred Years' War. So the one thing I would suggest is that if the only thing you can say after a century or so is that this war lasted a hundred years, you have no idea by that time what it was actually about. (laughs) All you're doing is describing how long it lasted. So... When we talk about something, you know, Afghanistan or the war on terror as being a a forever war, we're also doing the same thing. To call it a forever war is to really say you have no other description as to what it's about, other than it just seems to be lasting forever. Mm. But here's what, over that space actually of more than 100 years, what that struggle between these two different dynasties and the peoples they control did And you can see this by the 1420s, by the time that Joan of Arc rolls along, because she's doing something different. What made Joan of Arc an interesting historical figure, for a number of reasons, was that she actually is one of the first sort of exponents of what we would call French identity and French nationalism. Hmm. So, a hundred years into this war, it had become, it didn't start out this way, but it had become, increasingly, at least among the French, perceived as a war against an aggressive foreign people. The English now became this kind of identifiable enemy. And it was an enemy that all Frenchmen loyal to the king, or all people living in France, again, we don't call them, had in common. And it began to, the struggle with the English arguably did much to create a coherent French identity. So, you know, the simplest way to put it is: that what does being French mean? It means not being those guys, not being English. They are different. They come from this small, foggy, grapeless island. They have red <laughs> hair, and and big. this this is the, one of the things apparently that the, the French would notice about the English is lots of them had red hair, which was considered to be kind of weird and terrifying, and so that was a way of if if you look at sort of pictures and the way that english soldiers will be portrayed they're oddly <laughs> and certainly portrayed with red hair and what appears to be bad teeth but um but in the same way the english began to increasingly see the french as being this this thing that were against them and and as their and as their fortunes declined in france the french were more and more defined as something that was not english So by the time you get to the end of this, the the British are defeated. Uh, The French, after much struggle and turmoil and cost and expense and bloodshed, have succeeded. Nobody's going to live happily ever after. But they emerge out of this really through a a kind of, uh, you know, a sort of test by fire. One of the things this war did is it refined their very identity of who they were. It made them something collectively that they weren't to begin with. And of course, we're not even talking about the same people because no one was alive at the end of the war who'd been alive at the beginning. The people who were alive at the end of the of the 1400s in the victorious France who defeated England were people who had no connection as to how this war had ever started. It was simply, again, it was a kind of forever war towards them, and then they had to find their well, way. Well, back
0: in those days, uh, you know, a, a normal lifespan was what, 20, 30 years?
2: Uh, well, <laughs> That, that, that's kind of a misconception. We didn't think that people lived to 30 years and they died. There were people at any point in history then who lived to be 80 or 90. There just weren't very many of them. Right. Okay. So that's what, one of the things. So,
0: what I'm getting right. at is this extended over, you know, a generation is defined as 20 years. Mm-hmm. This extended over five generations. Your great, great, great grandfather would have served in the English or French army. Under those conditions,
2: yeah, to the relatively few people who who did. One of the other things you have to keep in mind is that, and this is similar in some ways to today, is that there only a very tiny part of either of those populations ever actually fought.
0: That's that was my next question because one of the ways I think, as a non-historian, this twenty-year war in Afghanistan following nine eleven kept going is that the draft was not part of it. All those people who served and died, 800,000 people served in in Afghanistan, 20,000 wounded, uh, 2,500, give or take, died. They were all a tiny minority of the U.S. population. So the war basically went on with almost nobody even remembering there was a war going on, because it certainly wasn't on the CBS or NBC Evening News.
2: It was it was a 21st century equivalent of what they used to call a colonial war.
0: Okay,
2: and that's and since much of it was really, in some ways, about extending American geopolitical influence into Central Asia, it was a colonial war. And colonial wars were the things that back in the 1800s, or even in the early 20th century, that the British, the French, anybody else who had Clinton fought. You know, you, you sent off what were probably a small number of long-term professional soldiers. And you would send them off to the far-flung corners of the empire, and you would subdue the dissident peoples who lived there and bring them into the imperial system. And some of those soldiers would be killed, and they would be replaced by others who were usually recruited from the poorest elements of your population, because, you know, the army was one of the things that was available for them. But for the general population, it never affected them.
0: Well, that's an incredible parallel. That's how the wars kept going. It didn't affect most people like the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war did not affect over two decades most Americans.
2: Well, it affected the, the individuals who were there and it affected the families of those people. Who either had to worry about them who were there, or had to mourn them when they were killed, or deal with them when they were wounded and incapacitated. But for the great, for the for the other 330 million people in the United States, it wasn't an everyday thing. It was something that somebody you knew's cousin was doing.
0: Well, you know, one of the sorry, one of the uh, subtitles of tonight's show is "What have we learned?" What I've learned. Is that unless you have a direct and immediate impact of the war on your population, these kinds of shenanigans can go on and on and on and make a select number of people multi-billionaires, you know, the arms people and all those subcontractors, and the rest of the culture doesn't even know. It's not even impacted. It doesn't even know what's going on.
2: And everybody who fights and dies there is a volunteer. Technically. Well... They signed on for a job. All right. So it's it's there and there is there is a difference in this. There's a difference between a long term professional army and an army composed of citizen soldiers or draftees. And, you know, a, a draftee is someone who is either through patriotic devotion or through simply, you know, the bad luck of the draw. They're they're there not entirely of their free will. So it's you might be eager to go, you might consider it the best opportunity of your life, or you might hate it, but there is, a, there is an element of compulsion. On the other hand, when you offer big enlistment bonuses and uh, post-service educational guarantees, when you throw out the economic incentives to get people to enlist, and that's one of the things that much of the armed services have problems with, is is getting enlistees. That's why they offer that money, because it's necessary to bring people in to what is inherently dangerous work.
0: So it's basically but, so- importing capitalism into the into the business of war?
2: Well, that's always been there. I mean it, it, one of the things that it does is that it turns you know, this is gonna be <laughs> I don't think this is a sound it, it may be controversial, but it's it's basically true. You We we place a, a great emphasis on the reason why people fight or why they would join the American Armed Services is out of a sense of patriotic duty, which for a great many people is true. But on the other hand, you also make it economically quite attractive. And why do you do that? Because you have to. Because quite simply, if you didn't offer the economic incentives for people to enlist in the military, many or most of those who currently do would not. And one of the things that does is that intentionally or not, but it turns it into a kind of mercenary arrangement. So you need
0: an economic underclass to perpetuate these forever wars. Otherwise, in a volunteer political system, nobody would sign up or very few would sign up.
2: Well, you know, not a lot of not a lot of rich people generally go out and volunteer for the army. Even if it's a tradition in their family to become, to go as an officer, they might well do that as a family tradition. That also carries with it social pre- prestige and the greater chance of monetary reward from that as well. But one of the things that really helps, I'm just not talking about the U.S., but it happens anywhere at any time, is that um, the main place you're going to recruit soldiers from are from the poor, because you're going to offer them a better economic opportunity. It was the same in Rome, all right, so wealthy Romans from patrician families, guys like Julius Caesar, became the leaders of army. They might devote themselves to leading the armies of Rome, but of course, they never served as a foot soldier. But the legionnaires who marched behind Caesar, the legionnaires who helped Caesar to control, you know, earn his reputation and eventually almost make him the king of Rome whose loyalty was to him, ultimately, and not Rome, because he handed out a lot of money to them, they were there because that was the best economic opportunity they could find. I mean, the Roman army, even in its imperial heyday, even had a kind of retirement plan. If you you stay in for 20 or 25 years, you know, and, and you live, and you've still got all of your limbs by the time that you're finished with it, they'll actually give you a plot of land. You can settle on the frontiers of the empire and you can become a farmer. You can continue to be a kind of useful contribution to this. And, and that there wasn't any other kind of job at that time, you know, that ever had a kind of retirement plan. You had to stay alive, which was of tricky, but that's, would be, would be necessary.
0: So during the uh, hundred years war on both sides, Loosely England, loosely France. Were the peasants conscripted to serve in the armies, or was it a volunteer reward system like it is supposedly today?
2: Well, most of the common soldiers would probably have been from peasant origin because, well, pretty much if you weren't from the nobility or the small middle class, the the merchants, the artisans, then you were a peasant. Yeah, remember, society at that time... At least eight out of every ten people living in those countries were farmers uh, and 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 generally relatively poor farmers as well and you know anybody who's even today farming is um you know it can be economically rewarding but it, but it's it's hard it's risky you know if the rains don't come or the rain too much rain comes uh it, it's 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 it, it's something that people would often you know you might argue with any kind of gumption or initiative would be looking for, for a way to get out of so if you looked at medieval armies which is basically where you're talking about you're looking at armies that would be led by aristocrats they're always led by the nobility the, the nobility were a, a warrior administrative caste that's, that's what nobles did nobles basically knew how to fight that was their whole purpose and when the king called on them the whole point within a feudal system or a system of patronage is that when the king called upon his nobles to show up to fight for him wherever he wanted to fight for whatever reason, they would ideally do so, and they'd bring along a number of fighting men with them, and those would be commoners. And you know, but it's, it's an interesting kind of question if you look at a at some kind of social profile of, of common soldiers, which we don't know much about in that period. You'd find people who were probably of peasant origin. Um, you'd often... <laughs> the term if, if that was... Well, let's let's take something up. Let's go up a few centuries to a, a different period, but same situation. If you go up to the, the armies of the Napoleonic Wars, and even if you go into the British army in the 19th century, again, you had aristocratic officers, you had common soldiers who either came from the countryside or they came from... From urban slums. This was the best kind of job they'd ever had. But it was someone, I'm sure it was Wellington or someone, asked, you know, what made your soldiers great? You know, where where do your soldiers come from? And he goes, well, they're basically the scum of the earth. Hmm. His view is that these these weren't necessarily particularly good or noble individuals. Uh, You know, the the question is, how many of them otherwise would have been thieves or cutthroats? (laughs) It's. It was, you You basically served out of the the money, which you had. I mean, you, you got a number of things. You, did, If your officers took care of you, what did you get? You got clothes. You probably got a new pair of boots every so often. And most importantly, you were fred, fed at least twice a day.
0: I'll tell you what, we're, 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 we're at the so top of the more. hour. Yeah. We're at the top of the hour. Let's hold it there. My guests this morning for the first couple hours are Dr. Richard Spence, who was an historian, uh, retired supposedly at the University of Idaho, and uh, Barbara Honiger, who served in a high level policy position in the Reagan White House and has been a dedicated, uh, I'm trying to think of the appropriate term, dedicated volunteer to get to the bottom in the truth of 9 11. And when we come back, we're going to ask Barbara the same question. What effects on our culture of 9-11 has she seen in the last 20 years? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Over and out.